let's have it sing street the musical if not uh let's create one ourselves we'll just sing all the songs <laughs> I, I could i mean i was i told you i was listening to the soundtrack this morning i was singing along with most of them <laughs> welcome to the crooked table podcast where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle and now your host robert yannis jr Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation, bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a film that that really means something to them, something that they grew up with or something that they felt a personal connection to, um, which can range from foreign films to indie blockbuster uh, to indies to blockbusters to you name it. So today I am thrilled to join Dane Michael of the CF3 podcast to the show. Welcome to the show, Dane. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So your podcast is Cult Fans, Films, and Finds. So tell me a little bit about um, how your show got started and you know why cult films? What, what, is, uh, what is it about cult films that makes you want to do an entire show about them? Well, I'm a huge fan of the show Mystery Science Theater 3000. And my co-host on the show, Jeff Johnson, is somebody who I did not know until we banded together on a Kickstarter campaign to help bring back Mystery Science Theater 3000 to Netflix. Um, So I actually wound up meeting him in person. He's from Milwaukee. I'm from Omaha area. And um, actually wound up meeting him at the premiere after the successful Kickstarter campaign. They did three premieres, one in New York, one in LA, and one in Chicago. And so we went to the one closest to us, Chicago, and met in person, um, have become friends over the past couple of years. And for two years, we've been talking about wanting to start a podcast. But as you know, Rob, how difficult it can be to actually do that. Mm-hmm. If you don't know, if you don't know what you're doing, you just kind of have to to learn, you know, trial by you know, trial by fire. Exactly. So a few months ago, we decided to just go for it and um, bought all the equipment and, you know, cult film. That's what brought us together was uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, which, yes, they riff cult films, but they truly do appreciate them as well, just as we do. So that's the impetus for our um, the creation of that podcast. So. And we were talking a little bit before uh, before we started this recording about how great things are going for the show. You've been really getting some really fun guests, and I think the great thing about cult film is that um, it's it's a specific niche, but it, it also touches on so many different genres. I mean, sci-fi, horror, like martial arts, like like there's literally any like any genre can fit in, into that category. So it's in a way, it still kind of gives you a large range of uh of topics to touch on absolutely i mean there are some films that we would stay away from like uh you know amadeus is never going to be covered (laughs) on our podcast but um you know we are kind of we've kind of considered pushing the envelope a few times like um an episode we've talked about doing just because of a potential guest is the mighty ducks and that's a disney movie that was pretty big at the box office is that a cult film i don't I mean, it's pushing the envelope, but, you know, we're not so, um, you know, stuck on doing a certain thing that we would say no to that. I mean, if the guest, if we could get them on there, we would absolutely do the Mighty Ducks. But um, a lot of the times you'll see that we do horror. Um, We just did Return of the Living Dead, for example, and Creepshow 2 the week before that. But we do um, 
we do vary it up. We're going to record an episode for Twister tomorrow. So disaster movies as well. Nice. So in your in your mind, what is what is kind of the as close as you can get to a definition of cult film? Because I mean, I think to me, there there's some films that I've seen referenced. I've seen Office Space or films like that references. Princess Bride, I saw references as a cult film. So it's like it's started as a cult film because it wasn't as financially successful initially, and then has since been since basically recognized as a classic. So is there a certain level, like, is it budget? Is it audience? Like what, you know, and you mentioned Mighty Ducks. I think that's an interesting like cross-section between nostalgia and, and cult film. So like, what, what do you, how do you define that when you're looking for films to discuss? It's so difficult. I mean, um, we haven't outright rejected anyone's idea uh, yet when they've suggested a film, but you know, I think it has to do with the following um, as much as anything, like who's following these films. Um, does it have a following that lasts? Are they obsessive about it? For example, um, the big Lebowski, mm-hmm. absolutely a cult film because they do a festival every year. Lebowski fest. Right. Um, you know, those are the types of movies that we're trying, that we really would try to hone in on. Now we did the Goonies for the same reason, Goonies has a festival in Astoria, um, but it, it was a Spielberg production, you know, directed by Richard Donner. It had um, big names attached to it at the time. I mean, they were kids, but big names. Right. But it has a cult following, and there's a DVD called The Goonies, uh, the unauthorized story of the making of a cult classic. I was like, oh, well, there's a DVD that somebody spent years making and uh, they're calling it a cult classic. So we can do it on our podcast, I think. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's kind of an interesting segue because I, I'm really hoping that the film we're talking about this week, which was not a box office success, um, that this ends up having some kind of a, a cult following. I'm not sure if that's happening or not. We'll get into that in a minute, but uh, I guess this is as good a time as any to, to uh, say that we're going to be talking about the 2016 John Carney film Sing Street. So listen, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. Who knows what this new prison will do for you? This is your time. You see, it's beautiful. How come you're not in school? I'm a model. Cool. Do you want to be in a video for my band? See, if you're in a band, sing me a song. Take on me. We need to form a band. Connor's not a band girl. Oh, good Jesus. You'd play every instrument known to mankind. Probably. Show sure. It's all about the girl, isn't it? What's this? Homework. Have school in the morning. This is school. Rock and roll is a risk. You risk being ridiculed. Jesus, what are you all wearing? Yeah, we're just working that out. That's great fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Have you kissed her yet? She's got a boyfriend. Pulled off in his car, music blaring. What was he listening to? Genesis. No woman can truly love a man who listens to Phil Collins. That was a little bit of the trailer for Sing Street from writer-director John Carney. So, Dane, what was your uh, what was your initial experience with this film? Did did you see it in theaters? When did you first discover it? And um, why is this the one you you wanted to talk about? I mean, I know it, I know how it came up on Twitter, but <laughs> between us, you know, just maybe tell the listener. Yeah. So, 
I didn't know that this was even a movie. I didn't know it was ever in theaters. And if it was anywhere near me, that was totally lost on me. And I should point out that I don't just like and follow cult films. I'm also an Oscarologist. So I do track Oscar fare as well and do wind up seeing small indie features quite a bit um, during fall and winter um, during that time of year. Um, I'm usually pretty well researched in that regard. Um, But I had no idea about this film until my friend Joe told me that it was on Netflix. And um, it came to Netflix, I believe, fairly quickly because I saw it in 20, I think it was 2016 when it came out. Mm -hmm. And I saw it uh, before the Oscars that year. I'd already seen it because I remember um, I hadn't seen it by the time it a song was nominated for the Golden Globes, Drive It Like You Stole It. And um, I had seen it shortly after the Globes and was hoping against hope that it would get a a Best Original Song nomination at the Oscars. It did not. No, it did um, not. (laughs) I saw it on Netflix and it uh, instantly made me ridiculously happy, as it has every time I've watched it ever since. It's just a life-affirming film. Um, I wanted to talk about it because it, instantly became my favorite movie of 2016 after I saw it. It has not been topped and never will be topped. And it's actually quickly entering my top 10 all-time films. I actually would probably put this, obviously, in my favorite. It's very much my favorite film of 2016, like by a significant margin. And that's a year that had a lot of really great films. Um, but mm-hmm. I would probably put this at least in my top 25 films, like my five, my favorite movies. And it's interesting. It's interesting because I liked once, which is from the same, uh, filmmaker as once and begin again. I liked begin again quite a bit. And I liked once as well. Um, but this film, like you were saying, I had such a strong emotional reaction to. So I saw this at a critic screening, I don't know, a couple months before it, it's, I guess, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever release it had, which is very limited because it actually just made a a total of a little over $3 million at the domestic box office. And I'm pretty sure that qualifies it as the lowest grossing film I've covered on this podcast since relaunching it (laughs) several months ago. Uh, So, you know, do the math. Every week we've talked about a different movie and this is the lowest grossing by uh, by quite a bit. Um, and, And overseas, considering that it's kind of an Irish co-production and everything, it made only $10 million overseas. So a box office total of $13 million worldwide. Um, and I came out of the theater, and one of the other critics, you know, John Carney had made once and begin again, very similarly, um, similarly stories about people coping with, you know, a, a crossroads in their life or, or somehow finding solace uh, or healing or a personal connection or whatever through music. And so one of the people came out, one of the critics, I remember saying something like along the lines of, oh, yeah, that was fine. I mean, when is he going to do something else? And I was totally floored by by this film when I saw it. And I did see w- when it came up on Netflix, I watched it a couple of times and then they took it off of Netflix. So I had to buy the Blu-ray um, because this I, it's I, it's very rare to me that I see a film this small and this unassuming and this out of nowhere that soars to become one of my favorites. We should just, I guess, lay, lay down the basics of the plot before we get really deep into it. So this is basically a, a musical coming-of-age comedy drama, and it's set in 1980s in Ireland, and it follows uh, a teen named Connor, played by Ferdia Walsh-Pilo, who I've never seen before or since in anything, 
which is unfortunate because he's really good in this film. And yes, uh, he's starting at a, at a new Christian Brothers school called Sing Street, S-Y-N-G-E. Of course, that's what he bases the name of the band of. And then uh, from there meets uh, a girl, of course. Every young story, every story about a teen boy starts with a girl, really. Uh, Rafina, played by Lucy Boynton, who's now uh, been in Murder on the Orient Express and Bohemian Rhapsody. She's, uh, I believe, dating Rami Malek. And the band it really just starts as a way to impress her. So right yes. off the, like, <laughs> I feel like this movie sucks you in right from minute one where they play, uh, oh, Graham, what was the name of the song? Stay Clean by Motorhead over the credits. Yes. So it brings you into the era and then you don't waste any time. I think the first, actually, to back it up a second, the first scene, he's overhearing his parents arguing. And yes, and he's writing and he's, a song. It's inspiration it. <laughs> for it. So, what what was it like? Were you hooked from the first from the first scene, or what, what was your what was your process going into watch this? Especially since it sounds like you just discovered it on Netflix, basically. Oh well, everything you're describing here is like my favorite things in movies. So, coming of age story, one of my favorite subgenres. Check, uh, period piece set in the '80s, which is my favorite decade. Check. Uh, movie about musicians. Check. I was in a band for 10 years in my 20s. Um, so I, I'm quite familiar with music and the songwriting process and all of that. So everything that you're talking about here is just fodder for me to love this movie. In addition, I was a huge and still am a huge fan of Once. I've been to Ireland a couple times going back next year. Um, purposely went out and scouted once filming locations and took a bunch of pictures and can now say I've been to, you know, the music store where they played falling slowly. Oh, wow. For example. Um, and funny side story. My brother actually sang falling slowly as the female part with Glenn Hansard at, uh, a huge Pearl jam 20 concert in Wisconsin. He was selected to go up on stage and there's footage of it on YouTube. And my brother is co-host. Uh, the other co-host of the CF3 podcast, um, along with myself and Jeff. So that's funny. Um, we'll be posting that someday, I'm sure, when it comes up on the show. But um, so, yeah, I was already a huge John Carney fan and Ireland fan. Now, you mentioned the small box office take to, mm-hmm. uh, internationally. People in Ireland don't go see movies because I talked to Irish people about once and they and most of them don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. So and that's sad to me. But uh but yeah, everything everything about this, I was loving it from the get go. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a musician, but I'm a writer, and I you know obviously interested in in creative outlets and all that stuff. I have a podcast, so uh, that was I, I mean, even though I haven't I don't have any personal experience writing songs, I feel like the film's version of the creative process just really it really it really made it really hit home, and it, fe- it felt more real than most movies that normally cover this kind of ground, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Um, I love it. There's a scene where um, Cosmo, we'll call him, because that's what he renames himself. Right. When Cosmo shows up at his friend's house and he's like, do you want to write a song? Because he's he's feeling emotions and he's like, I got to I got to put this, this into song. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, I've, I've been in that situation before. That's awesome. And his friend's like, absolutely. You know, so he gets it. And uh, that's the dynamic between those two is one of my favorite things about the film. And really, in a way, it's it's the film is almost 
kind of, uh, I mean, it's it's not a fantasy film, but in a way it has, like, there's two worlds. And and this plays into, this comes into play most obviously in the Drive It Like You Stole It uh, sequence. Yes. That right. there's, there's the world where his parents are on the verge of divorce, where his brother, you know, used to be a very successful student and on, you know, uh, in college doing well, whatever, and then flunked out and has basically become, I guess, kind of a slacker. And where he's now taken out of his element and put into the school where there's a bully that we constantly wants to beat the shit out of him. There's like the uh, the the uh, brother Baxter in front in charge of the whole school is <clears throat> out to get him for the color of his shoes, which inspires another song later on. Um, right. So there's like this the harsh reality that Cosmo has to deal with, and then the the escape that he finds in his art, which. You know, you see when whenever he goes over to his friend's house and they're writing music. And by the way, I just want to throw out, I love all those all those kids, the supporting kids, not Cosmo and Rafina, who obviously get the bulk of the screen time. All of them were so much fun in this movie. And oh, yeah, perfect uh, casting. Darren, yes. the manager and like all of the uh, all of it. it was was so much fun. And they create this little family um, in a, as a way to escape all of their individual issues. I mean, even Barry, the. The bully gets in on it at one point, becomes the bouncer because you find out he's got an abusive, uh, abusive like alcoholic father at home. So everybody has uses creativity as their their way out, and I love the way that Drive It Like You Stole It sort of um, embodies that. I love that you mentioned Barry because I had written that down in my notes that I love how John Carney found a way to even humanize the bully mm-hmm. and assimilate him into the gang and make it make him somehow use that aggression for positive if there's you know if there's a way the only real villain in the movie winds up being the headmaster and i wonder if carney had trouble with making him just a flat out bad guy and not giving him some reason or you know reason behind why he's acting the way he is mm-hmm. it's just but i guess he's saying that there are some people that are just jerks and there's no real reason for it so well it's also to me the film and this is part of why I think I get so transported by it is so clearly told from the perspective of a teen boy that, it, you know, you, you, you idolize your brother. The, the pretty girl across the street is like this goddess in your eyes. Uh, the, the, the headmaster is an asshole. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you seeing things from Cosmo's perspective and not really far beyond it. It's just, it's not until later in the film that his, that he really gets a clearer picture of what Rafina's life is really like and, um, you know, starts to understand his brother a little bit. And we'll get into Jack Rayner, I'm sure, a little, in a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think it's, it's, so, it's such a if, – if so much of filmmaking is, is um, the, the voice behind it, the voice that John Carney perfects here is so perfect – yeah, I like uh, – so there's a few quotes that I wrote down from Cosmo that I think really convey kind of the kind of what he's trying to say with his story. So he has Cosmo – when he's supposed to describe his genre of music, he's like, I'm a futurist, mm-hmm. no nostalgia, no looking backwards, just forward. Um, I thought that was awesome. Like that's what this movie is going to be. It's It's not going to be him dwelling on things like his – parents uh marriage dissolving Mm -hmm. he's living he's living out his life and he's determined to keep looking forward and and make the necessary changes to to be happy and that's what he wants for rafina similarly so there's a scene where 
where he says, um, well, she says, so that's my life now, working at McDonald's, hanging out with a 15-year-old schoolboy. I'm exactly like my mom. So that's that's somebody looking backwards and and not being happy. And he's saying, you know what? I'm not going to have any of this. And there's so he just says, I have to go. I have a gig I have to rehearse for or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's like, so tell me about that. And he's like, no. I thought that was the bravest line that anybody could have ever written for a teen boy who's, you know, in love with this girl to say to have him stand up to her and say, no, like I'm I'm better than being called just a 15 year old boy. You know, I have better things to do. And if you love me, you'll come you'll come find me. I mean, and early on, what is she supposed to be? Maybe 17, like a year, a couple years older than him. Not a whole lot. Right. And even at the very beginning, she's early on. She's like, "Oh, you're the kid from you're the kid in the band." It's like, like he's she's she's such an adult, I guess, because of you know the life that she's led, things like that. Um, but you mention his um, well, first, well, let's mention that the some of the Rafina and Cosmo conversations. Like, I love the the thing about being happy, sad that comes up at one point where they're talking. I think he learns from his brother. What is it, the cure? I believe. And he says that they're mm-hmm. happy, sad. I loved that. I think there's a lot of, they both have such such distinct perspectives and they learn a lot about each other over the, you know, about and about themselves over the course of their relationship. Yeah, I mean, she teaches him too. When she says you can never do anything by half, mm-hmm. when she just jumps in the water, she goes for it, you know, like she's imparting wisdom on him too. It goes both ways, so. And that's when he kisses her, I believe, and and then uh, he asks about the other guy, and she's like, "Oh, you, ru- you ruined it." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's learning. He's learning. And it's typical for a teen boy to say the wrong thing, um, but his his process. You, you you said about him being a futurist. I, I what I like about the you know you see the creative process with him and his band and them creating the songs and shooting the music video with for riddle of the model initially and and you're able to track the the progression and their their songwriting and their you know their their music videos and everything just like little by little evolving the scrappiness of the riddle of the model which i love I love the way that the, the you yeah. know with the vampire teeth and like the ridiculous outfits and none of them are match I, and the way that they work with those things it really I mean I didn't it makes me it made me wish that I had been more creative as a as a kid as their age because I didn't really pursue a lot of those things at that age and I wish that I had been one of those kids running around with a, a video camera or something um, so it's it's nice to kind of live vicariously through these characters but. A lot of the, the the futurism thing, at least, comes directly from his brother, who's who's basically counseling him um, in popular music and and trying to trying to kind of give him a, a push in that direction. What did what do you think about the the relationship between him and his brother and how that plays out over the course of the film? Oh my God! I mean, Jack Rayner's character might be. The second, I think he's the second most important character in the movie after Cosmo. I mean, you could make the argument for Rafina, but I mean, it says right there um, before the end credits roll for brothers everywhere. And the first time I saw this movie, I didn't get it. But then when I saw that, you know, when that I saw that just before the credits start rolling, like a, it's like a light turned on in my head. And I only have a brother, one older brother who has imparted, uh, we're in the band together as well, he has imparted his musical taste on me just the same way that Jack Rayner's character does here. And like, 
I cry most of the time during that last scene. Every, I, I didn't today, but I've seen the movie probably, oh, 15 times, I would say. And um, I usually do cry during that last scene. And uh, it's just because of the relationship with the brother. It's so well done. I mean, you mentioned seeing his progression through music and it's music that his brother's introducing to him. But I love how you can listen to like, so there's a scene where they're doing, listening to Duran Duran and then he comes up with Riddle of the Model. There's the scene where um, they are listening to The Cure and then he comes up with A Beautiful Sea. There's the scene where they're listening to, um, I can't remember the Hollow Notes song. Why can't I? Uh, oh, Maneater? Yes. It is that is Maneater? Man- yeah, it is. Yeah. And then he comes up with Drive It Like He Stole. So like these and these songs, by the way, these are perfect representations of a kid imitating what he's hearing on 80s radio. It's they're just absolutely perfect. But yeah, to get back to to Jack Rayner's character, like how, how that wasn't given Oscar attention, that role. It's just brilliant. Like, I, I don't understand how it gets ignored, but. I'm so glad you said that because I was <laughs> I was going to bring that up. So we you know we mentioned earlier that the fact that Drive It Like You Stole It wasn't nominated for Best Original Song is ridiculous. Um, especially I think La La Land, which is a movie I like, got two nominations. It's like really <laughs> we know it's going to probably win score. I personally thought that it should have squeezed in somewhere. You don't need to give La La Land two song nominations. But uh, I my big one was I was almost equally if not more hoping for Jack Rayner to get a best supporting actor because the brother dynamic is the heart of the movie in a lot of ways um i think that's that's kind of the, the part of the trick that the movie plays on you it comes in and it, you think it's going to be about the romance and that's an integral part of it but ultimately it's his relationship with Brendan that's what really you know helps him grow and you know it helps him and Rafina find their their way, their way to pursue their dreams, to to make it out of their, you know, their little Irish town and, and head across to London. And I am an older brother, so I related <laughs> to him as much as if not more than than Cosmo. So like this the scenes, um everything with him, like the way he he's trying to He's trying to mentor his brother with the music, but he's also trying to clue him in on what's going on in their parents' marriage, but also at the same time trying to shield him from some of that. That the, All yeah. of that rang so true to me. And then, of course, Rainer has his big breakdown scene late in the film where he's talking about, oh, you know, before before you guys came around, it was just me. And, you know, they were... They, they are, he macheted. He yeah, macheted. The, oh, I loved it. <laughs> through the bullshit or whatever, whatever it was. Was that you in your family, Rob? <laughs> you macheted. Through I guess the so. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, I was a, I was a fucking jet engine. That whole thing. I yeah. loved it. That should have yeah. been an Oscar clip. And it's, it's really, it's annoying to me that it didn't because, uh, I think he is the heart and soul of this movie. And, you know, he he's bearing the brunt. And I think you see this a lot in, in a lot of family dynamics. My my wife and I each have only one sibling and she's a younger sibling and I'm the older sibling. So we kind of cancel each other out in that way. But I'm always telling her that, like, as the older sibling, you sort of feel that weight of responsibility. You feel that, well, I need to try and hold together my siblings and my parents and be there for everybody. Like, you feel like a lot of weight on you and you really that really comes across on screen in, in Jack Rayner's performance. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And Rob, I know you're a, I've listened to the Crooked Table podcast a little bit and I know you're a huge Star Wars fan. 
Um, so I don't know if you know this, but Jack Rayner was in the running to play Han Solo in Solo, A Star Wars Story. Um, he was very early in the running. I did hear that. If you take a look at his headshots, you very quickly start to see. And there's no way you'll notice it in Sing Street, so don't look there. But look at like his headshots. I mean, there's a striking resemblance to young Harrison Ford. I absolutely could have seen it. Um, now, Alden, I think his name is, um, that they went with. Yeah, yeah. He's fine, but he, I mean, he doesn't have, to me, the the Harrison Ford look. And I think Rayner actually could have pulled that off. But um, even though he's Irish, I he's proved that he's such a talented actor that I think he would have been able to do just fine. But I feel like, and I don't know if this is me now totally pulling something out of my ass and fan casting, but I feel <laughs> like... I feel like I've heard his name surrounding Batman at one point. I could totally see him in something like that. That's not to say that he needs a franchise because I would be fine with him doing more of this kind of work, but that's really how you how you catapult your career your career these days. Uh, let me look at Chris Hemsworth, who nobody knew a few years ago, and now he's in the probably what's probably going to be the biggest movie of all time. Right. I mean, he was just a throwaway captain in a Star Trek movie. Exactly. (laughs) And now look who he is. But yes, people deserve to make money based on their performances in this movie. We already know Lucy Boynton's headed that way. Um, Jack has had some decent roles since then. But um, uh, the friend, I can't remember his name uh, in the movie, the friend with the glasses. Rabbit stuff is what I call him. Oh, yeah. Just because yeah. that's how he answers um, when somebody asks what he's up to. Rabbit <laughs> stuff. Uh, he's in a he's got his own uh, YouTube series where he's the lead character. Oh, so nice. So, yeah, it's nice to see some of these people getting noticed from this movie since the movie itself didn't make money and get nearly enough notice. But if these people start making it big, a lot of people are going to go back and watch this and it's going to become the cult classic that it should be. That's what I was saying up front. This could be something (laughs) you could cover on your show at some point, hopefully. Oh, I'd love to. (laughs) I'd love to. It'll, it'll just wind up being me singing every single song from the soundtrack. (laughs) Cause I've listened to it. I kid you not. I had it in my CD player, um, in my car for like a year straight. So I've listened to it hundreds of times. Same. I bought the the CD and then I actually listened to the whole soundtrack this morning, getting getting myself mentally mentally prepped and and hyped up for this episode, which I guess that's a good segue to talking about about the music itself. So we talked about some of the the 80s music. They have Rio by Duran Duran and some stuff by The Cure, Hall & Oates, Joe Jackson, a lot of that other stuff. But um, the original music, I think, is what the real highlight is. And that was composed by Danny Wilson frontman Gary Clark and then actually uh, John Carney and a couple of his bandmates from the band Relish worked on most of it, it sounds like. So I guess should we just go through the original Sing Street songs and just uh, kind of do little by little? Okay, so Riddle of the Model, the the song, I love the the song, The, the music video I think sells it even more even more so. Uh, and that's obviously yes. the Duran Duran one, because I love the the fact that you could, it's, you can tell this is just a bunch of kids who don't know what they're doing, throwing this video together. And the, the Asian inspired the uh, like riff. Dun, that, dun, 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 dun. Yes. <laughs> that, that's that's great. I, I think, uh, I don't remember who brings that. Is it Rafina that says that suggests that? I think I forget exactly. But what do you, what do you think about uh, Riddle of the Model as I guess sort of their, their entrance into like their, their creative statement. I get it because it's, it's not 
the best song that they come up with by a long shot, but it's still, uh, it still has the hook that would make you believe that Rafina would dig it enough to take time out of her day to show up and do these kids makeup, you know, in addition to starring as the model in the video. I mean, it's believable and it's also believable as a Duran Duran inspired song because that's what really gets him into wanting to start a band is seeing on top of the pops how how amazing Duran Duran is. And it becomes a moment that even their family can come together and discuss, you know, in a positive light, except for except for little finger. The dad is is kind of <laughs> negative towards it. but. <laughs> Well, I mean, and that, and that's the other really cute thing as the older brother watching this movie is that he starts quoting his he quotes his older brother about and misquotes about, him. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, <laughs> but but he's like uh, he's just you know taking that that inspiration out into the world. And I mean, as Brandon says, rock and roll is a risk; they risk being ridiculed. So uh, you know, you know, I think Riddle of the Model is is a really solid starting point. Like even in that very minute beginnings of what Sing Street the band would ultimately become there is something there as you as you pointed out uh, I really love Up uh, my Up might be almost my second favorite of the original Sing Street songs so Up I rank as my favorite really okay Sing so we're not Street that song. far off <laughs> it's my favorite uh, I love that I love I love ballads um, it's just it's not too for me the uh, there's one song, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one that's super slow, the love song. That's a little too slow to be my favorite, but this is strikes the right balance between pop goodness, a ballad, you know, and it's, it's got an amazing hook. I don't understand why that wasn't in consideration as well for right. um, Golden Globes, Oscars, what, what have you. Right. So, I know, uh, I agree, and I like that it. It, it comes back later in the film, it's like the the sad version the be- is on the soundtrack they call it the bedroom mix it maybe it's almost yes. it, it's weird because it made me think of uh of uh team america world police where it's like america fuck yeah they have like the slow version <laughs> later on yes. uh, so i like the way that it comes back into play and i agree with you up is an is an outstanding song i think the one you were thinking of that that was even slower is to find you yes i like that one as well but if you could t- yeah i don't know there's something specific about Up. It has this the idealism in it that I think really, uh, really captures what Cosmo like where he starts early in this film. The way he sees Rafina, I forget the, what they did. What the video is for Up? I don't know if they did a, a video for it in the film. Um, they didn't make a video, right. as far as I know, but they just show like montages while it's playing. I think so. I think that's more of what it is. Um, to find you though, I really love the lyrics for that. I think that's a show showcase for that. Plus, it's you can tell how difficult it was for Ferdia to sing that one because it's completely stripped down, um, and so he's basically there's nothing to hide behind for his voice there. Uh, so I love how vul- vulnerable he sounds in it because it goes really well with what he's saying. You know, so that's a great song as well. Yeah, that's the that's that's the melancholy track on the on the Sing Street soundtrack, basically. Um, and then we have a beautiful sea, which obviously gets an, an entire sequence devoted to it. That's when the the uh, when she jumps in the water and and her I think her idea was that she she's gonna turn into a mermaid 
and then she's heading back to the water and that whole thing. I, I really like that. And that's, as we mentioned earlier, that was a, a pivotal moment for their relationship as well, and not just the creative evolution of the band. He was inspired to write that after listening to The Cure. So <laughs> I just watched The Cure inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it's not quite on that level of greatness, but it is a good song as well. And it does, like you said, it does lead to an important part of the movie. So I like it quite a bit. That's his happy, sad song. Uh, and then, of course, the song everybody is talk- still talking about in relation to this movie, Drive It Like You Stole It, which works for me not only because you, you see in that sequence the fantasy world starting to cross over into like his, his escapism from with music starting to cross over into his family life where he imagines everyone coming in there and his parents are together and happy and Rafina is being like, basically the the thing with Rafina is very back to the future inspired, as they mentioned in the movie. Uh, yes. So I, I love that. I love the fact that they're Irish kids looking at uh, an American film, be like, you know, like that American movie back to the future. Uh, doing like 1950s dancing, he's trying to coach the the crowd on how to how to act for the video, um, and the reveal at the end, you know that how that's really playing out when he's performing the song. I that I loved all that so much, and that's I guess probably the most re-listenable as far as like the poppiest, like the one that one that feels like it did just come ripped out from the 1980s and popped into uh, 2016. Yeah, and. Um if you've had the soundtrack, so you've heard it obviously recorded with the professional singer, those, those versions don't hold up to me as much no. as no, not at all. the, the uh, kids performing it. I actually don't even know why they would want it on the soundtrack, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, I loved it. I love that whole sequence. He clearly wanted this to be his enchantment under the sea dance moment. <laughs> it did not happen for him. No, but, unfortunately. Um, again, it leads to pivotal necessary moments in the film later to follow. So plus it's also what Rafina says, you can't do anything by half. You know, it's just about drive it like you stole it, live your life the way you want to. It's a liberation song is what it is. And yes. it, it's if this story is a coming of age of him from from this, you know, this kid in his bedroom hearing his parents fight and has no nowhere to express himself and nowhere to really be himself, doesn't even really know who he is at that point, to then just get so confident where he's, you know, trying out different looks at school and, and he's wearing makeup that Brother Baxter <laughs> washes off in a kind of a violent manner. Um, uh, all of that, it's, this is his, like, his coming out party, I guess, as, if you, uh, as it were. This is his, his coming of age has arrived, essentially. And I, and I love the celebration of that. And would you say that he's uh, risking being ridiculed, for taking sure. his brother's advice, you know, for sure, <laughs> driving for it sure. like he stole it? Exactly. His brother is just full of great advice, you know, so. He is. Um, and then he does a couple of songs. I guess we couldn't mention the, the sequence. Uh, later on, he en- they end up playing at the um, a school dance and they're performing. It's essentially the, the last hurrah for the Bansing Street in the film. Uh, just because they're they they do girls, which is which is fine. I I'm never really it's it's honestly it's probably the the original song by Sing Street on here that I usually kind of skip the most. Oh, I don't skip it ever because I love it. <laughs> it's really short. It only takes like two minutes of your time, I think. And uh, 
yeah, they don't they don't introduce the writing process of that or even mention it before it's being played. Yeah, I totally appreciate, though, the inclusion of it in there to show um, that, yes, this band was working on lots of lots of material so that they could actually play a full show. It makes it more realistic than, um, you know, when I've seen, say, take, for example, if you've ever seen the show Goldberg's, um, they play gigs with only one song. They only show them ever practicing or singing one song. And then they book a gig. I'm like, what the hell else are these guys like playing? (laughs) (laughs) But um, that just adds to the believability that they are willing to go the extra mile to come up with another song. And I, it's, it's catchy. It's got a good hook. So I never skip girls. I like it. I, I don't dislike it. It's just it, it, uh, when you have songs like Drive It Like You Stole It and Up and A Beautiful Sea, like songs that play more integrals okay. in the plot, it's, uh, you know, you, I don't really have the emotional connection to girls in, a, in the mm-hmm. way that I do so many of the others. And then Brown Shoes is a, is a very uh, pointed uh criticism of brother Baxter and his whole thing with the having wearing brown shoes. It starts the film off and it, that's basically Cosmo's welcome to the new school is the the whole debacle with his shoes. Um, What did you, what did you feel about that scene and about the the way that they, they, he really leans into it, leans into it. Definitely not going by half with the, the little cardboard cutouts of brother Baxter's face that they're passing out into the audience and all of that. Uh, I really like the the sort of teenage anarchy that that invokes. I love that they were willing to put their whole band's career on the line doing that. They're like, yeah, this is it. Let's go for it. Um, It was the perfect way to bookend his time there at the at Sing Street, because I I doubt he's coming back, even if the boat trip doesn't work out. But (laughs) I doubt he's going to be allowed to come back there. But uh, I thought it was great. It was a great way to resolve that matter. And, um, you know, for the headmaster, whatever you want to call him, to get his comeuppance. And and it's it, it leads into the emotional climb, the, the main climax of the movie, which is, of course, when, um, well, Rafina shows up towards the end of Brown Shoes, I believe. And then they take off. They develop this plan. And he and. Cosmo says says goodbye to his his mom, who's, I guess, sleeping at the time. And Brendan gets them on the boat. And they set this up earlier, of course, with Rafina and Cosmo going out on the boat. And she's like, oh, I'd love to just leave all this behind and go across the the way to London. She had a plan with her boyfriend who completely overlooked her and and just... (laughs) What an asshole, by the way. Let's get that out of the way. God, and he listens to Phil Collins <laughs> on top of that. <laughs> no, that's – and that's the other thing. Like you never you, – you see what Rafina's romantic situation is. You realize that she's living at a, at a girl's home and, you know, Cosmo – again, this is – it's – I mentioned – I alluded to this earlier. Initially, he's just like, who is this mysterious woman standing out to the corner you know, the riddle of the models is all about that, basically, about idealizing and seeing her for who she is. And there's a whole conversation about that, of course. Once you get to know them, then it's it, it you have to face who they really are and not the vision of, of that person that's in your head. So little by little, we start to the the veil starts to be pulled back on, you know, Rafina's what she's actually like and what her her situation is and of course brendan picks up on this much much earlier than cosmo does but i i loved the way that that played out and the way that you never knew exactly how that romance was going to 
was going to end up because Rafino and Cosmo are in very similar places in a lot of ways, but also in polar opposite places at the same time. I would say he's definitely much more sure of himself. So he has the self-confidence. And so I think he's, he's perfect. The perfect one to, you know, take her away. That's how it has to be for her. I like, I really enjoy watching Cosmo's transformation in this movie. Yeah, I do too. That's a, what a beautiful ending, by the way. Oh, that, that's the next, that's the next topic I wanted to get to. So I actually think Ferdia Walsh Pilo is really great in this. And I, it's unfortunate that he hasn't really, and again, this film didn't really, this film itself didn't really do anything for, for many of these people. I mean, it looks like he has had a role on Vikings, I guess the TV show Vikings, which I'm not super familiar with, but I guess he was in that in season five of that. I thought that he was in a, a zombie TV series too, like was British, but, hmm. but, uh, he has a lot of presence in this film as far, you know, as far as not only musical talent, but also like in his performance. And I think there's so much underrated work in here from Maria Doyle Kennedy and Aidan Gillen, as you mentioned, Littlefinger, uh, as the parents and especially Jack Rayner, who really stands out. There's just, there's just so much, so much heart and love and passion went into this film and it, and it really comes across in the story. And John Carney obviously is a musician himself. So this is sort of loosely based on his, his own experience growing up in Ireland and things like that. And it's, as you said, it's such a, it radiates such positivity that every time I feel like I, every time I watch it, I get emotional, not just at the ending, but like throughout just the conversations that they're having about how they're feeling and, and where they want to go in life and about their dreams and all of that. Like it really connects with me in a, in a very personal way. That's why when we, on Twitter, when, when you mentioned that you like this, that you love this movie so much, I was like, Oh, we were like, we, this needs to, I think you actually was like, Oh, there you go. That's what we need to talk about. Yeah, it's like I'll talk about that movie any day because, um, like I said, I would describe it as I always describe it as life affirming. And you can go through my uh, Twitter feed, Facebook feed or whatever. And um, Twitter, especially because it's easier to see all my posts in a row. I'll be posting about like this and that cult films, this cult film, that horror sci-fi fantasy and then you'll just see like interspersed in their random tweets about sing street <laughs> so <laughs> because i'm hoping and i hashtag it every time and i'm hoping that like somebody's actually going through twitter and searching the hashtag sing street because they just discovered it and i want to see if other people love it like i do and uh, i'm glad you do <laughs> yeah oh yeah so much so let's put, put a pin in that thought for a second so let's talk about the ending so um, so Brendan, actually, they go back to the house and they get Brendan to, to take them in the boat across, uh, or take them, drive them to the boat at the harbor so that they can take it to London. And of course, I think Jack Rayner's character is, is kind of caught between, I, I'm the big brother. I should be trying, I should be trying, you know, my responsibility should be to talk him out of this. But at the same time, the, you know, I, I, he's pursue he's pursuing the thing that I never I never had the guts to do, you know, and it's, so he's mm -hmm. living by he's in a way wants his brother to be better than he is. And I think it, by the end of it probably takes some inspiration from the fact that his brother did that. Like we don't see what happens after this movie ends, but I, we presume that Brendan maybe will actually start to get his act together too. I think he doesn't, he doesn't, aren't there some hints at that already late in the film? I mean, he goes outside and sits on the steps, That's so he gets out of the step. house. He gets out of the house for a second. <laughs> it's a first I think step. it was, I think it was necessary for him to have that breakdown where he 
where he does tell Cosmo everything that he went through before Cosmo was even old enough to remember, you know? Right. So I think that was a necessary point for him. Um, And then, yes, I think just seeing and aiding and abetting his brother's (laughs) escape, I think that's, that's definitely cause to believe that things will get better for him. So you get the very emotional and cathartic Brendan, like cheering his brother on and like, when he jumps up in the air, oh, that's when I, oh, like, that's when I lose it every time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when he goes, yes, yes. That's when I lose it every time. Yeah. That, so you have that moment, which again, like I said, as an older brother really hits me. And then them in, on the boat, they almost hit a cruise ship, I think. Or some kind of boat, <laughs> and you have to like have this last minute uh, oh, oh shit moment where they have to avoid that, and then the, it's raining, and they're just like the they're just the the, the look on on Cosmo's face when it, the camera like really cl- co- cuts to that close up of him, it's just a mix of emotions. But the the whole point is that we don't know we don't know what comes next for them, they don't know what comes next for them. But it's the perfect ending because. It, it, the the destination is not the point for these characters. The journey is the point, and the fact that they they made this leap, and that they yes. are they are breaking free from what this town and what this this world that they live in, what the the people in their lives think that they're capable of, and they're like, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna try it, we're gonna go for it. We don't know. I mean, these people are teenagers. Are, are Is this true love? Are they going to end up together forever and be like millionaires in London? I mean, I guess possibly, but it's unlikely and like rationally, you know, but the point of this movie is that it's not a rational ending. It's an emotional ending. It's a, it's a metaphorical ending for they're making it to the other side, you know? And, and I, yes. oh, I love it so much. I'm getting like emotional talking about it. Uh, that's, I mean, I love that you get it. So the point, the whole point of that is they took the leap. So he's not his brother. She's not her mom. Neither one of them were able to do that. They, neither one was able to take that leap, you know. And so that, that they get it at such a young age bodes well for each of their future, whether or not they're together in that future or completely independent and back in Ireland. So. Yeah. Right. They took that chance. And I, I even like the Adam Levine song, Go Now, that plays over that sequence, which Adam Levine, who was uh, appeared in Begin Again. Did you ever actually get a chance to see that one, too? Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but okay. um, my brother swears by it and t- tells me to watch it all the time. But it's John Carney, so you know it's good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, I've spontaneously like tweeted or Facebooked about either Begin Again or Sing Street sporadically over the last few years. Um, and, and I, I like that moment and the, the, the message of go now, that's, which is what they're doing and all that, which is a little on the nose, but the whole point, I mean, this whole movie is so earnest and obviously wearing its heart on its sleeve that I, you know, I can see some people being cynical, like, uh, this is whatever. This movie is just overly sentimental or whatever, but I, that's, I mean, I have a soft spot for that kind of thing. So it, it totally it totally worked for me. And every like I've seen this several times and every time I see it, I have the same emotional reaction as you as it sounds like you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the special features on the Blu-ray, Adam Levine's in there and he said that he watched it and he realized, wow, this is his best movie. So he likes it better than the one he's in mm-hmm. and he likes it better than once, which says a lot. And uh, I'm sad that his poll couldn't get this a bigger, you know, bigger attention worldwide, yeah. a bigger audience. 
Well, it's too bad. They should have done like a Sing Street theme night on The Voice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> get the get the Maroon Five uh, fans behind this movie. Maybe it would have helped a little bit. Um, it does also seem like this is what I was saying earlier about let's put a pin in the thought about other people discovering it. It does start. It's starting to seem like Sing Street might be become, getting a gaining a little more traction as a pop cultural force because I it was so funny that this happened. I think literally last night I saw a, an article online that the people that were did made once uh, transition to a stage musical are working now on Sing Street as a stage musical. Is it going to happen? A, don't, well, it don't sounds toy like with it, me. it sounds like it's going to happen. I mean, I, I it was slashfilm.com I believe, which is not, you know, a, a you know, a, it's a more reputable uh, entertainment site. So it's in development, at least. I don't know is it, if it's going to happen, if it's going to be as big as once and like revitalize Sing Street so that people will go back and realize how great this movie is and kick themselves for having slept on it. I hope so. Uh, I mean, it's obviously early stages, but that that to me feels like a sliver of hope that that it will it will explode little by little uh, over the next few years. Don't toy with my emotions, Rob. <laughs> you better. You better know what you're talking about, and this better happen. You could see a Broadway cast turning up into like a Tony-winning production. You could easily see it. The songs are already there. The story's already there. I mean, this would be an easy translation onto a, onto stage. So, hopefully, no special effects. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not like uh, what is it? Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Is not. You don't have to worry about the budget. It's just. It's not going to be Sing Street, Turn Off the Dark. Right. That's the other. I was thinking about doing that reference instead of Harry Potter. And then I'm glad I didn't because it, it left it open for you to, to pick up on that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, hopefully Sing Street will have a resurgence and become a, a cult film. I think right now it's it's it has a very small cult, very small cult. But I think them having it on Netflix obviously helped. I mean, that's how you discovered it. So, uh, mm-hmm. I wish they would put it back on a streaming service because I, I think that that helps a lot get the word out about this. So hopefully this episode will, will also help, you know, whoever listens to this, maybe I'll get some more some more eyes on Sing Street because that's in a way that's part of what's great about doing the show is that I we get to talk about songs, uh, songs, songs in this episode. But we get to talk about films that aren't being covered really anywhere else. And nobody's talking about Sing Street. And I think there really should be. Sing Street does have a small fan base right now, but it's a very passionate fan base. And I would hope that those people are like just typing into the search results in Apple podcast Sing Street and like Crooked Table is going to come up and total strangers are going to listen to us talk about this and they're going to feel the exact same way, I hope, because we've never talked about this movie before now, but we agree on so much and we we pick up on the same points and things like that. So I, I think it it could reach a huge audience if they would just give it the time. Yep. Well, I mean, the teenage experience and what this film has to say, I think, is such a universal theme. So um, hopefully that that's the case. But I think we've talked about the film pretty well, thir- pretty thoroughly. Is there anything that I didn't mention that you wanted to talk about before we start wrapping things up? I think we did a great job. I'm not going to have any regrets. We didn't do this podcast by half exactly exactly as rafina <laughs> would want so uh dane thank you so much for coming on the crooked table podcast did you want to let people know where they could find you on social media and things like that i personally am at dane michael d-a-n-e-m-y-c-h-a-l 
on Twitter and um, at CF3Pod is the CF3 podcast. And then you can listen to us at CF3Pod.com or just type in CF3 podcast into Apple, Stitcher, uh, Spotify. You know, we're on lots of the podcatcher apps. So please take a listen. We have great guests coming up all the time. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check out CF3. And Dane, thanks so much for coming on the show and give me a chance to talk about Sing Street. And this was very cathartic for me to, to cause I haven't really covered it on the podcast uh, at all ever, I don't think. And, and uh, this was a, a good opportunity to, to get, like I said, get the word out about the movie and share my own love for it. So I appreciate having you on. Excellent. Thanks for having me. All right, great. Thanks, man. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the low KED.